Last night I had a dream that left me in a cold sweat. Picture this. I'm on a long par four. I strike my drive. I've got 145 in. I think I can step out an eight iron. I can do this. Flush the eight iron. I'm watching the ball. It looks beautiful heading to the green. And it lands 15 yards short of the green. I didn't realize it was uphill and there was a stiff wind above the trees blowing back at me. My friends look at me like I'm an idiot. I go home. My wife leaves me because of it. My boss hears about it. He fires me. Within a week, I'm on the street screaming, why didn't I have a caddy? I need a caddy. And I woke up yelling that word caddy. Okay, look, we all know the advantage of a caddy on the course, but what about a caddy for your business? That's right. The real world, the business world is no different. Good news for you, folks. Belay has your back. B-E-L-A-Y. They pair busy leaders, business owners, and entrepreneurs with high-quality U.S.-based executive assistants to help you prioritize your time, delegate the details you don't want to deal with, and focus on what matters most. That's Belay. And right now, Belay is offering our listeners 25% off the first month of their executive assistant subscription. All you have to do, text the word GOLF, G-O-L-F, to 55123 to schedule a call. Or visit belaysolutions.com slash golf digest to get started today. Folks, this is really, really worth your time. I want you to do more of what you love and less of what you don't with a Belay executive assistant. I don't think I will ever stop being fascinated by one of my favorite stories in golf, Blaine Barber, PGA Tour Q School in 2012. Now, this was an era, in fact, I think this was the last year where it applied, where you could still go directly to the PGA Tour through Q School. You make it through the three stages, you know, you qualify, you actually get your card. You may know Barber, you may know his story, but if you don't, it stands to me as one of the really psychologically fascinating moments in professional golf, which deals with this idea that we're going to talk about today of being ethical, of cheating. A year ago at first stage, I had an incident that occurred during the second round, and it was a long um, last two rounds, and so I called the tour and disqualified myself, which was um, six days after the event had finished. The situation in 2012 was this. Blaine Barber, 22 years old at the time, Auburn graduate. He was all SEC while he was there. He was all American. He played in the Palmer Cup, played in the Walker Cup. He's a big deal, right? He's an up-and-comer. Looks like he's got a big career ahead of him. So he's playing Q School, first stage, of course, called Callaway Gardens, just south of Atlanta. And he's in a bunker in the second round. He's doing well. And on his backswing in this bunker shot, he thinks maybe he brushes a leaf. Now, his brother, whose name is Shane, also with a Y, so you've got Shane and Blaine. Shane's caddying for him, and he doesn't think the leaf moved. He doesn't think Blaine hit it at all. But Barber isn't sure, so to be safe, he's a pretty scrupulous guy. He penalizes himself one stroke. Goes on with his round. After that round, it looks like he has a very good chance to move on to the final stage. And I just want to say there's no understating the importance of that, right? Getting to the final stage of Q School is massive. You're one step away from getting your PGA Tour card, various other kinds of status you can have, but you got to get to that final stage. You know, at stake, forging a career, maybe becoming rich. And the other side of that is if you fail, well, you're still in the minor leagues. You know, you're not dead in the water necessarily, but it is harder. You can succeed, but it is harder. And there's a lot of guys who spend a lot of time in that minor leagues or a little time who don't succeed who never make that big leap. So the situation, the moment for Blaine Barber is massive. It's massive for everybody in this tournament. 
And for the ones with real hope of making it, you know, they've worked their entire lives for this moment. What wouldn't they give to come through? So, that night he finishes his round. Blaine Barber mentions the Leaf incident in the bunker to a friend of his from Auburn, a teammate named Michael Hebert. I hope I'm saying that right. Michael, I apologize if I'm not. And Hebert says, hold on. You know, bad news for you, Blaine. That's actually a two-stroke penalty. It's rule 13-4C. Look it up. It's not one stroke. It's two. And now things become really tough for Barber because it's not as simple as him going back and, okay, I'll take one more stroke away. Sorry about that. It doesn't work that way. At this point, he's already turned in his scorecard. And if you put the wrong penalty in your scorecard, well, once you sign it, that's a disqualification. You know, you're out of the whole tournament. You do not advance to the final stage. Don't go to the PGA Tour. You're stuck in limbo, probably at least for another year, maybe for much longer, because, you know, these opportunities are not given away. It's going to be just as hard every year. So think about what Barber must have been feeling at that exact moment. In a story written by Sean Martin at Golf Week at the time, Martin's now with the PGA Tour. He was with Golf Week then. Barber is quoted as saying, Quote, that's when things went haywire in my mind. My caddy was watching and didn't see the leaf move. I thought maybe I'd psych myself into thinking I touched the leaf. End quote. And put yourself in Barbara's shoes. You now have two choices. One, you stick with your original assessment, which is that you did brush the leaf, in which case you're honor bound to disqualify yourself. Or two, you say nothing. And if you say nothing, what is the justification for that? Well, if you're honest, you can say, I think this rule is too punitive. I'm going to make the cut by more than one shot. The greater cosmic justice here is just ignoring the rules. I didn't know. I didn't do anything wrong. I just little screw up. You know, come on. Or if you're the kind of guy who can't bring himself to say, you know, basically, not to hell with the rules. You want to think you're the good guy. Maybe you invent a different kind of justification. Like maybe, well, maybe my brother's right. I didn't brush the leaf. You know, it's 50-50 whether I brush the leaf. Let's just leave it alone. Shouldn't have called the penalty on myself in the first place. So again, the greater justice here is if we just if we don't do anything. And that's what Barber does for two more days. I don't know which of those things he chose. Chooses one of them for two more days. He keeps playing. He keeps playing well. Ends up advancing by five shots. The penalty stroke wouldn't have mattered. And in theory, doesn't that make it easier to justify the whole thing? I mean, looking ahead of him, he's got the final stage ahead. You know, maybe the PGA Tour itself ahead. He's going he's gonna to take that away from us all because of an insignificant leaf? Something that didn't affect anything? He made it by five shots. It all had to seem pretty ridiculous. Imagine having to sacrifice your dream or at least defer it for that. I mean, that can't be fair, can it? In the greater scheme, that can't be fair. And that's the situation for almost a week after this tournament ends. But six days later, Blaine Barber calls the PGA Tour, tells them what happened disqualifies himself. Now, when you read this story, either back then or today, sometimes people bring it up, it's always presented, always, as a morality tale. You know, Barber did the questionable thing for a short period of time, but then he did the right thing. And in that context, it's a great story about someone wrestling with his his own demons, coming out on the right side, the ethical side, Christianity always gets thrown into the mix. It was the godly decision. You know, Barber's a big Christian. In his own quotes, he said he prayed on it. He thought about it. And quote, I just did not have any peace about it. And after he confessed, he did feel peace. He said, 
doing the right thing and doing what I know is right in my heart and in my conscience is more important than short-term success. End quote. I don't doubt Blaine Barber, not one bit. I don't really know him very well, but the people who do say he's a very nice guy, legitimate person. But I do find a couple things interesting here. One, and I think this is a humanizing angle, if anything, he wanted to advance so badly that he you know, fought with his own brain for a relatively long time, a week, right? Those last two days of competition and a week afterward, he was thinking about just letting it go, letting it stand. And you can imagine why, right? It's obvious, everything that he stands to gain from it. But there might have been somebody else in that situation who the minute they talked to Michael A. Bear and said, listen, I, you know, uh, I did this. And Michael A. Bear says, that's a two-stroke penalty. They turn themselves in right away. And if they do that, we may not hear about this story or at least not to the same extent. What makes it interesting is that weak gap where Barber was thinking about not turning himself in, right? That's what makes it interesting. And the second thing, that I can't help wonder about is whether there are secondary motivations here. Again, we go back to Hebert. He told his teammate about this. His teammate told him the correct penalty. You know, maybe his playing partners knew it too, but I focus on that teammate Hebert. Who is Hebert going to tell, right? With time, eventually, if Barber just continues here, let's say he goes on to play the final stage, you know, gets his PGA Tour card, there's a decent chance this story is going to get out anyway via a bear somebody else and i wonder if that's part of the calculation for barber you know saying not only am i going to feel like i did something wrong but other people are going to know about it and my reputation is going to be ruined because nobody's going to buy that i thought i brushed the leaf originally and now i don't think i did so the point there is there could be something deeper than just the morality play could be something a little more you know self-interested and that's not a criticism of barber i have no idea what he's thinking i'm not in his mind but if you were him, wouldn't you at least consider that angle? You know, I'm going to be known as the guy who bent the rules to make the tour. And if he does consider that, and if it influences decision, it makes the whole thing a little less pure. But maybe a little more true. Maybe a little more human. Interestingly, Barber's DQ sends six guys to the next stage. One of them was Chesson Hadley, who we, you know, he made the tour. He's had a successful sort of journeyman's career. Barber's career didn't turn out maybe exactly like he dreamed, but he did eventually make it to the PGA Tour, had a few successful years there. You know, he's earned more than $2 million. In fact, he is still playing on the Corn Ferry Tour this year. But I bring up Barber's story not just because it's a good story, which it is, but because when we talk about this concept of cheating, I want to emphasize that even in what looks like a black and white story, there are so many gray areas, no matter how it appears on the surface. This is never... A simple narrative, not ever. And even this Blaine Barber stuff, which is, you know, on the positive side of the spectrum, it has a happy ending, even that comes with complications. There's nothing clean, there's nothing tidy. Barber obviously had a moral impulse, both at the time of calling the original infraction, when his caddy said, you know, I don't think you brushed that leaf, and a week later when he DQ'd himself. But there would be people, because people are different, who would never even have called that original penalty. Maybe I brushed a leaf, maybe I didn't, who cares? It doesn't affect anything. And nobody would ever know except them. And maybe there would be someone else in a different situation who went a step further, maybe actively influenced things in a positive way for themselves, whatever that might look like. One thing I think we can say about cheating is that it's relatively rare in professional golf, or at least rarely talked about. 
There are people and incidents that come to mind when we say the word, the C word, and I would argue they jump so readily into view because they are the exception. And even in the case when you have allegations thrown around, you know, which happens every once in a while, it takes a lot to get anybody, but particularly another golfer, to talk about it. You know, that omerta that we talk about, that code of silence, which makes our story today about Tom Watson and Gary Player so interesting because Watson seems to have accused Player of doing something that was against the rules. And I use that somewhat cumbersome phrase on purpose. You know, cheating is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? There's no looking into someone's heart or someone's brain to know whether they were cheating or whether they just made a mistake or didn't know the rules well enough or, or anything. The only way you can have definitive proof that someone cheated is if they come out and say, yes, I cheated. You know, hand in the air, I cheated. Which, you might be shocked to know, doesn't happen very often. So, what Watson accused player of was doing something illegal, something not allowed under the rules. And he didn't make this accusation in front of the media, at least not on purpose. But even raising the topic is a big deal in golf. And this happened in 1983, you know, close to the peak of Watson's career, maybe a little after the peak of players. Happened at the end of a bad day for Watson. And looking back, it is one of those interesting moments in golf history that gives us a glimpse at a different side of two personalities, of these men who are now old men, known for other things primarily and in other ways, but who at the time were young, or at least younger, right? Carried with them not just reputations, but auras that were far different than how we see them today. They are two of the most singular personalities in their sport. They were alpha males. And on that day in 1983, they clashed in a way that golf seems hell-bent on avoiding when they can and sweeping under the rug when they can't avoid it. But this time, it got out. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. And our story today hinges on an incident on November 27th 1983, which we know about largely because of a New York Times reporter named Dave Anderson. Anderson was covering the Skins game, which was a special event being held that day at a golf course called Desert Highlands in Scottsdale, Arizona. This was, in fact, the first ever Skins game under that particular brand name. That event eventually lasted from that original year, 1983, all the way to 2008. It was usually held in December you know, by the end, if you look on Wikipedia, the names in there are like Stephen Ames and KJ Choi. You know, they kind of lost steam along the way. The ratings got bad. LG, which was a primary sponsor, they pulled out. That was it. They canceled it kind of at the last minute in 2009. But the concept, or at least the, you know, the theme around the concept was revived in 2018 in a different form. That's called The Match. So, you know, if you enjoyed The Match watching that, this was kind of the spiritual predecessor. So, Skins game, historically, it runs out of steam eventually. But that year, the first year, 1983, the lineup was about as impressive as it gets. Four players, and, and these four were pretty much the Mount Rushmore of great players of their ear. It was Tom Watson, Gary Player, Jack Nicklaus, and Arnold Palmer. Not a bad group, right? NBC was televising it. The great baseball announcer, Vin Scully, was commentating. They were really trying to make it a big deal. And these guys were playing for a lot of money at the time. You know, it doesn't compare to today and the purses we have and all that, but there was $360,000 at stake for a single round of golf, which is not a bad day's work. 
To give you an idea for comparison, the winner's share at the Masters that year was 90000 Now, a skins game, this is stuff you probably already know, but maybe there's somebody who needs a refresher. In a skins game like this one, there's a money prize for winning every hole. You win the hole by having the best score and being the only guy to have the best score, right? So you make a birdie, everyone else makes par. That's great, you win the hole. Two people make a birdie, it goes on to the next one. But if nobody wins a hole, the prize carries over. So you can have these situations where, you know, a number of holes in a row, nobody wins, and suddenly the money keeps accumulating and you're playing for three or four holes worth of money. And on top of that, for TV purposes, for the drama, the money escalates. So it's, you know, winning the 18th hole is better than winning the first hole, sometimes by a pretty significant factor. So that day, Tom Watson, for instance, he won the first hole, $10,000, but by the end, they were playing for $30,000 a hole. Which brings us to number 16. 13, 14, and 15. Nobody had won those holes. So you have the, again, the prize money accumulating. And they're playing for $120,000 on one hole, 16. 30000 more than you get for winning the Masters just to win four holes in an exhibition event where you only have to compete against three other players. And Tom Watson at this point is still stuck on that original $10,000 he got from winning the first hole. Arnold Palmer had made a 40-foot birdie putt. For $100,000 on the 12th hole, so he was doing fine. Nicholas hadn't made much. Player hadn't made much yet. So Palmer was set, but the other guys were looking to collect. And this was going to be clearly the last really big opportunity. The last time they'd be playing for six figures. The 16th is a par 3, a monster hole, 244 yards. Palmer finds himself in a greenside bunker in two. He's probably not going to make par. Nicholas hit his birdie putt four feet past. Watson chips on with a sand wedge to four inches, so he's in for par. And then comes Gary Player. He's 60 feet away, and there is a leaf against his ball. He moves the leaf. He chips to eight inches. He's good for par. The hole is split. They move on. They go to the 17th hole. Now they're playing for $150,000. Player makes birdie. Nobody else can convert, and he wins the big money. It also means that Nicholas and Watson are not going to come away with much of anything here at least by their standards. Palmer and Player are going to be the big winners with Player as the top dog. He ends up making $170,000 that day. Watson stuck on his 10000 Now, as you might have worked out from that summary, the Leaf is going to be the overwhelming massive issue here. The Leaf is the main character, but let's hold on a second because I want to talk about the history of these two gentlemen. I'm going to read you an excerpt from The Scotsman. This comes via thesandtrap.com. And the excerpt reads, quote, Cheating is the great unmentionable in professional golf, and until this summer, the most notorious rumor in golf was that Gary Player had cheated his way to victory in the 1974 Open Championship, courtesy of his caddy dropping a second ball at the 71st hole after the South African hit his tee shot in the rough. It is unmentioned no more, end quote. Now, these are allegations, secondhand, obviously. And like most cheating allegations, there is no concrete proof of it. Player himself denies it emphatically, says there's no way. The Independent later wrote, quote, There are stories, surely apocryphal, that his original ball was subsequently found in the rough and that it is now sitting in a safe, end quote. Interestingly, that same year, in fact, that same day, one hole later, Player was on the 18th hole. This was at Royal Lytham and St. Anne's hit his ball behind the green next to the brick facade of a building such that he was basically forced to shoot left-handed 
And you can see this video online. You can go look it up. See, you know, Google Player, Royal Litham, 1974. As he's preparing to hit the shot, he brings his club, his putter back along the loose sand and kind of, you know, accidentally maybe clears the path to the ball. Hits a decent chip, two putts, wins by four shots. So it wasn't like he needed, you know, to create any special advantage. Nevertheless, the video evidence is pretty clear that one way or another, he was altering his lie. But it's interesting, okay, when you Google something like Gary Player Cheater, you aren't going to get a ton of outright accusations or condemnations from mainstream sources. There are a lot of blogs out there, message board posts, but when it comes to newspapers or magazines or things like that, you get little innuendo. For example, South Florida Sun Sentinel, you know, there's an article there from, from back then contemporaneously where you read things like, quote, for all his international success, player can't shake his notoriety as a golfer long suspected of taking indecent liberties with the rules, end quote. And he had his defenders, but even his defenders had a way of acknowledging the premise. You know, the idea that he had to be defended from this. Peter DeBriner, who was writing in Golf Digest in 1984, a year after the story we're telling today, he wrote, quote, In the world of golf, one often hears accusations that player is a cheat. The charge is ludicrous. He is meticulous in sending for the referee in doubtful situations, but he then presses hard for the maximum advantage. If referees have given him excessive benefits of doubt, then that is their fault, not his. Player's conscience is clear. He simply takes what he perceives to be a properly professional attitude toward the rules. He'll take what he can get. End quote. So make of all that what you will. You know, player is not the only major figure in this game to have these questions bandied about. It's been happening for a long time. It's happening today. But that maybe gives you a little context for this skins game and this incident. What about Watson? Well, briefly on Watson, like a lot of really great players in a lot of different sports, he is distant from his fellow competitors. He has a chip on his shoulder. There's a famous story from the 77 Masters. He and Nicholas are dueling it out, and he thinks Nicholas gestures at him with his putter after he makes a putt to take the lead. He takes that very personally, you know, goes on to win using that as fuel for the fire. Only later learned it wasn't true. Nicholas wasn't gesturing at him at all. But it served him, right? It served him in the moment to motivate him. And there's a Michael Jordan quality to that kind of thing. Invent your own grudges if they don't actually exist. But mostly he was reserved. He kept himself at a distance. John Feinstein in his book, A Good Walk Spoiled, called him shy and almost obsessively private. And Feinstein tells this story that is somewhat representative of Watson, especially at this time. Davis Love III, when he was 24, he was warming up at the 88 Open Championship. Watson comes onto the putting green. And, you know, keep in mind, Watson at this point is this massive figure. Love is very young, very new. Watson asks him to take a look at his putting stroke, which is sort of mind-blowing for Love, right? Imagine, I don't know, if you're a rookie and Tiger Woods talks to you. It's that kind of thing, and it makes him nervous. But he's not going to say no to Tom Watson. So he watches him. And, you know, foremost in his mind is, I don't want to say something to screw this guy up. So he gives him some generic advice. He says, you know, Tom, almost all the great putters keep their eyes directly over the ball or inside the ball, and yours might be outside the ball. Figures this is safe, this is good, might even be helpful. Watson doesn't even look up. Just says, nah, I don't buy that. You're wrong. And that's it. That's the whole interaction. Love walks away. 
thinking, well, when, you know, why even ask me if that's going to be your response? And that's kind of Watson in a nutshell when it comes to interacting with other players, at least during the height of his playing career. It becomes more open later when he's a Ryder Cup captain. That's all in the future. So it presents this very interesting clash of personalities between Watson and player. You got this gruff guy, doesn't take any nonsense, not very friendly, against the guy who's coming in with this reputation. They're, they're almost destined to clash in a way. And player is the opposite of Watson, that he's very loquacious, very talkative. So keep all that in mind as context for what's coming next. And now let's talk about The Leaf. The New York Times piece by Dave Anderson doesn't really get to what the deal with The Leaf is. You know, that was the original reporting, but it it's kind of leaves it ambiguous. And if you're like me, you're thinking, wait, aren't you allowed to move a leaf? The answer is yes, but only if the leaf is a loose impediment. And a Washington Post story written a couple days later by Thomas Boswell spells it out a little more clearly what happened here, which was that this was a root leaf. And what that means, which he spells out, is that basically it's the leaf of a weed that's growing behind players' ball. There's a little plant there. Okay, so this is different. It's not a loose impediment. It's something that exists on the course. It's rooted. And you're not supposed to move something like that. And here's how Watson described it to Boswell in a phone interview. Quote, as I saw it, he was moving a leaf of a weed right behind his ball so he could have a clear path to the ball for the club face of his club. I know the leaf was rooted because it popped back up to its original position. When I took it up with Gary, and I'd have done the same thing in a week in Nassau, he said he was touching something beside the ball, not behind it. End quote. So, player moves this leaf, you know, whether it's next to the ball or beside it, he chips to a gimme distance. He wins the next hole and all the money, as we said. Tosses his hat in the air. He's very happy. And while they're walking up to the 18th tee, you know, remember, the cameras are all on these guys. Part of, the, part of the appeal of this whole thing is the banter. And Nicholas says to Watson, well, Thomas, you and I are not doing very well. Watson doesn't reply. He's totally silent. You know, Gary Player, the chatter keeps going back and forth. Gary Player takes off the sweater. You know, Palmer, with these little, these little jokes, these little golfer jokes, he says, it gets warm, doesn't it? You know, Nicholas makes a joke that player can buy another horse with all the winnings from his last hole. And player says, isn't it amazing? We've been playing 30 years, and this is the biggest we've ever had. You know, Nicholas retorts with, well, the winners laugh and make funny jokes. The losers keep playing. Deal the cards. And you may notice, as I'm recounting all this dialogue, there is one notable voice that you don't hear, and that voice belongs to Tom Watson. He never spoke. So they finish 18. They do their press 10 interviews. They get their checks. They sign autographs for the, you know, thousand or so people who came to watch that day. And then when it all dies down, the moment of big drama arrives. There is a dirt road near the 18th green. And Watson, player, Nicholas, and Joe Dye, who is the rules official that day, you probably know that name, former commissioner of the PGA Tour, a massive figure in the world of golf. They're all there. And that's when Watson confronts player. And critically, very critically, because if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't be even talking about this because we wouldn't know. Dave Anderson, the New York Times writer, is 30 feet away. and He can hear them. Or I should say, I think it's Dave Anderson. Because in his story, he writes, you know, the phrase, from 30 feet away, he doesn't name himself, which, you know, you wouldn't in the New York Times. That's not their style. So it could have been secondhand for all I know. Maybe somebody told him this. But... I'm assuming it was Anderson, and this is what he writes. Quote, 
From 30 feet away, Tom Watson could be heard saying, I'm accusing you, Gary. You can't do that. I'm tired of this. I wasn't watching you, but I saw it. End quote. Later in Golf Digest, Jerry Tardy wrote that Joe Dye pleaded with Anderson not to run the story, you know, saying it was a private conversation. And isn't it interesting that we see this dynamic play out, you know, recently Alan Shipnuck and Phil Mickelson, this concept of what's on the record. Can you just overhear something? Is that fair game? But anyway, Anderson ignores Dye. The story goes out. You know, he gets a quote from player defending himself. He says, you know, I was within the rules. And that's all you get from that dialogue, from that particular story. But one thing I find very interesting beyond Watson's accusations are the words, I'm tired of this. Seems to imply, you know, this is my reading, but it seems to imply it's happened before. It's not the first time. It's something he's sick of. So to confront another player about this at an exhibition event is a very big deal in golf. You know, though we should say, we use that word exhibition like it's some frivolous thing. They're playing for a ton of money by the standards of the time. More money than they're going to play for the whole rest of the season. So this is not exactly the same as a friendly round. Don't let that word exhibition fool you. And you don't hear any more from these guys until the Washington Post piece by Boswell comes out a couple days later and Watson stood behind what he'd said. And here's what he told Boswell, quote, what I saw was a violation. I challenged Gary on it. I asked him if he was ignorant of the rule, rule 17-1. What it comes down to is his word against mine. I didn't get much sleep last night for thinking about it. I know this is a keg of dynamite. I know how reputations can be damaged. There are probably even people who still think this is sour grapes. End quote. And what's interesting there is that apparently when they were in their conference by the 18th Green, they decided between themselves not to talk about it publicly. Obviously, they didn't know or, you know, didn't know there was a reporter nearby or thought he might not say anything. They didn't know he was going to write it up. And Watson had said in a statement before talking to Boswell that, again, he thinks player broke the rules. But, quote, my greatest regret, though, is that this private matter became a public incident. End quote. Well, it's a funny reaction. If your greatest regret is it going public, it's funny the next day to go do an interview with the Washington Post where you rehash everything in greater detail. But regardless, I thought one more quote he gave to Boswell was pretty interesting. He said, whether player was ignorant of the rule or was trying to improve his line of play is something that lies within his heart. We'll never know. And that's true. Like we said above, you can think you know exactly what's going on. You might have a suspicion that in your brain goes beyond reasonable doubt. It seems certain to you. But until someone admits it, they always have the defense of, oh, well, I just made a mistake. I didn't know. Didn't do anything wrong. Anyway, there is clearly some bad blood there. And if player has reputation issues before this, now they are heightened. And on that note, I always think sometimes when we look at these historical incidents, you know, what if there was social media back then? What if there was Twitter? What if there was Facebook? Would have been a much bigger story, wouldn't it? I mean, it's still a big story. It still made the newspapers, and that's how people got their news. But there is a certain amplification effect when you can not only have the story, but then talk about it with everybody in a public way where it spreads uh, to a greater degree. There's more magnitude toward it. And it's funny that, you know, Gary Player almost should be grateful that this happened in an era before all of that because he, he doesn't get away unscathed, but his reputation stays more or less intact. These stories have a way of, of disappearing that they wouldn't today, I don't think. So 
Time marches on. Just before the 1991 Open Championship, eight years later, Gary Player wrote a book, a memoir of sorts, and as part of the publicity campaign for it, he decides he's going to go on the attack against Watson. I have in front of me here an article from the 1991 Tampa Bay Times, and the first sentence reads, quote, Gary Player accuses Tom Watson of cheating to win the 1997 Masters and the British Open in his new book, To Be the Best, end quote. Now, that's an interesting little bit of turnabout, right? That's pretty incendiary. Turns out the issue is that Watson was using clubs that were outside the legally allowed groove specifications of the USGA, but they weren't outside those limits at the time that he won, and that seems important. At the time, they were legal. It's only later that they were ruled illegal. And player, in this book apparently, I haven't read it, but according to the article, he said that Watson should give back the claret jug, give back the green jacket. And the quote from the book was, I would hate to have won two of the world's major championships knowing I had used illegally grooved clubs. And that's not all he's got for Watson. Player also wrote, quote, I have to say on a personal level that I have never warmed up to Tom as a person. I found him too dour, end quote. And according to the Sun Sentinel, he goes on to say, Watson is a sore loser who is discourteous to fellow pros. Watson didn't like it, as you might imagine. Reporters caught him in the locker room at that 91 Open, and he said, consider the source. It upsets me, and I don't want to play golf upset. Besides, it would degrade this great championship to get involved in a debate now with the little man. End quote. Little man. Gary Player, five feet, six inches tall. On Google, anyway. Maybe, maybe that's even a couple inches higher, but... Tom Watson couldn't resist a shot there. You know, I'm not going to talk about it, but here's a little zinger. Here's a little zinger on your way. So there's a mutual dislike there, to put it mildly. It lasted a decade at least after their skins incident, probably longer. And I think there's an instinct when you talk about this stuff, especially when it's not fresh. It involves these guys who are these older figures that, again, you know, you associate them with other things at this point. Gary Player, to me, is almost a comic figure. He's an 87-year-old man in terrific shape who goes around and he loves to tell everybody about what great shape he's in. You know, you, you kind of laugh every time you see him. Tom Watson is the elder statesman. You know, he had his two Ryder Cup captaincies. Now he keeps a low profile. But there's an instinct, because these guys are older, to almost put it at a distance, to say, oh, maybe they were both right in their way, or, you know, who cares? But what I think is more interesting isn't to judge them, but at least to get into that frame of mind where it was raw, to get contemporaneous with it, to go back in time. It was raw. They were young. They were at the top of their sport. And this would have had the immediacy, just like when something happens between two top players today, right? Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. Remember what a big deal that was when there's this real animosity and people have strong opinions and it's all over the internet. Again, imagine if this all had happened in the Twitter era, right? And if we're talking about that scale, that spectrum we talked about with Blaine Barber, where nobody is 100% a cheater, nobody's 100% virtuous. I think if you have that framework, that immediate framework, this is one of the most interesting incidents between Palmer and player that maybe exists in the entire history of the sport. To have these guys square off over an ethical issue at a tournament, an exhibition that has you know no effect on their legacy two of the great players in the game, to have one accuse the other and to have that rankle so much that eight years later in a book, the first guy says, no, you're the cheater. I mean, that's extraordinary. Maybe both of them in their way have a point, 
But even saying that, acting like both sides are equally right or wrong, has a way of obscuring the issue, letting people off the hook. And this is golf, okay? This is not war. This is not life or death stuff. But I think it says something about the persistence of these kinds of ethical quandaries in all of life, in the greater scheme of things. And when I hear the story about Watson the player and the intensity of that day in the exhibition, you know, how it simmers under the surface for at least a decade, maybe longer, maybe it still simmers. I think the most interesting question for each person who hears about that, who listens to this story is, where do your sympathies lie? Who are you aligned with? Who do you want to be aligned with? Who are you actually aligned with? And how would it change for you based on the circumstance? How would it change if hundreds of thousands of dollars were at stake? In other words, do you have a price? Where do you fall on that spectrum? And not to get too philosophical, we could go off the deep end here, but are we born with this kind of thing? Was Watson always going to do what he did? Was player the same thing? He was always going to follow his path. Was Blaine Barber always going to do what he did? Is it all deterministic? Is it all written in the stars? And that gets harder, right? We don't like that because what it does is it takes away our ability to judge them. You know, if it's in their DNA, then maybe they can't help themselves. Not just the cheaters, maybe the ethical people can't help themselves either. Now, I don't know if I believe that, but I want to bring it up because it points to the complications. And the interesting thing about life, maybe this is just me, but I think these questions get harder, not easier, the older you get, the more you learn. So where do you fall on the spectrum? Well, let's put it this way. I don't think there are many of us who, at some point in our lives, don't have to ask ourselves that tough question and to live with the answer. <laughs> 